Hello, I'm Haley Chitty, Planet Aid's Communications Manager, and I'm excited to welcome you to another episode of Sustainable Solutions with Planet Aid, a podcast featuring in-depth conversations with innovators, creating solutions to tackle the most pressing issues facing our planet and communities. Join us every month as we embark on a journey of discovery, hope, and change. Please don't forget to like and share this episode, and most of all, hit that subscribe button. And now your host, Planet Aid's communications and content specialist, Monica Johnson. Thank you, Haley. And Haley's just going to hang out with us a little later on uh, and give us the perspective of our conversation a little later on. So thank you so much, Haley. And welcome to Sustainable Solutions with Planet Aid. I am Monica Johnson, and I'm going to be your guide for this journey as we take challenging situations and try to simplify them. And it's also an opportunity to learn from incredible individuals and organizations at the forefront of developing and implementing sustainable solutions. And actually today, that incredible organization is going to be Planet Aid itself. And so today we're going to go ahead and talk to our Climate Adaptation Partnership Associate, Jonelle Palmer. Welcome, Jonelle. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to talk a little bit about the climate work that Planet Aid is doing. Very good. And you know what, Jonelle, climate climate adaptation really is something that uh, you've either heard about or you haven't, you know, and (laughs) and I think a lot of people really haven't. So tell us a little bit about what that is. Sure. I I laugh because it's something I hear about every day, but it's so true that it it really gets siloed into one part of the world or the other. And it's important for everybody. So I'm excited to be talking about it with you guys today. But I guess to to give an, an understanding of what climate adaptation is, you need to have an understanding of cl- what climate change is. So let me just start with a very broad explanation. Climate change is the changing of the, the global climate, typically the, the warming of our climate overall. And it's something that's caused by human emissions, particularly fossil fuels, which is things like gasoline, um, but many, you know, many parts of that process. Um, And so because of the increasing emissions, it's causing a change in our atmosphere, which is leading to warming overall around the world. And we see uh, different impacts of climate change. It can be extreme weather. It can be increased heat. It can be increased drought. Um, sea level rise. There are many, many impacts. And uh, and so we have to understand what the impacts are, and then we have to adapt to them. And so that's where climate adaptation comes in. And it's essentially just understanding what the impacts are or will be in a particular place, and then adjusting the lifestyles or infrastructure of that place to withstand the impacts of climate change. So when is climate adaptation needed? Who's going to look at it and say, this is, you know, something that we need to enforce right now? Sure. It's a great question. Enforce too, it's it's a, a, a broad field and sometimes it's enforcement, sometimes it's implementation. There are many different ways adaptation can take place. And as to when it, it needs to take place now, it needs to take place in lots of different places um, and it needs to take place in the future too. Uh, and it really just depends on where the impacts are most severe and who has the least ability to withstand those impacts. Um, and it depends on the community, but uh, 
city planners, for example, should be involved in adaptation. Local communities, local people, but also national governments should be involved in planning for how a community or a country or a region is going to adapt to those impacts. Okay. So you said that enforce is something that would actually happen. So tell me what would that look like as far as a government enforcement, Mm -hmm. or is that banning things or what, what does that look like? I think maybe all of the above. When I said it, I was thinking of policy, and policy is is critical to creating an enabling environment for adaptation to take place. And we see that um, there's a large push internationally for sort of at the international policy level for policy to exist around adaptation and then be filtered down from the international to the national to the regional community level, local level. And so in that sense, yes, enforcement of policy for adaptation, but we could also see the banning of something that's causing problems in the area or a change in like maybe um, maybe this the impacts of salt water rising are impacting inland fisheries. And so adjusting fishing practices to prevent a collapse of those fisheries because there's too many pressures. And that might be something that's enforced by a patrol boat or something. So it really depends on the context. But we're sort of getting into the realm of mitigation, which is the other side of climate response, and that is reducing the emissions that are actually causing climate change. So they are kind of connected. And sometimes enforcement maybe goes more into the mitigation world in that regard in terms of banning things. So um, let me but- ask you a question, <laughs> because when you get to the global scale, is are these the kind of things that are talked about at upcoming? You've got COP28. So should we start at that level and then trickle down because you said it seems to be a trickle down situation. That's one way that it can happen. Um, Fortunately, it's not the only way because those processes are slow and sometimes controversial. And um, when you try to get everybody on board, sometimes you get very watered down policy or watered down commitments. Um, And, you know, every country has different commitments, but we do see that. So we also see bottom-up approaches, local adaptation taking place in very real and impactful ways, and that being scaled up to reach different regions or to be applicable at different um, different levels as well. So it can happen in, in many different ways, um, okay. but we do see both, both approaches. So you talked about climate adaptation. You talked about climate uh, mitigation a little bit. So mm-hmm. tell me a little bit about how adaptation and resilience are different. Sure. So I would say those are two sides of the same coin, actually, but they get used interchangeably, but they do have slightly different meanings. And so I'll say that adaptation is more of an action step. It's something being done to address or adjust uh, impacts in a community, in a space, um, because climate has having some severe or negative impact. Whereas resilience is more of a status, a community that has high climate resilience does not need to adapt as much as a community with low climate resilience. For example, their infrastructure, perhaps their geography, their stability, whatever the context may be, prevents or keeps climate change from having as severe of an impact as a community that might be right on the coast and experiencing severe weather and sea level rise. They're going to need to adapt more so their resilience is lower. Are the regenerative practices also considered adaptation as well? That's a good question. And I think it depends on the practice. But Mm -hmm. yes, in a way, adaptation is 
changing systems or practices to be able to sustain and survive the impacts of climate change and re regenerative agriculture or regenerative, I think you were at regenerative textile manufacturing, which touches agriculture on agriculture. <laughs> yes. So uh, there's a lot there. Um, and that is critical, honestly, critical. And whether, you know, whether it's an adapt adaptation to climate change or an adjustment to protect, protect soil quality, for example, from not climate change necessarily, but negative impacts of the way people farm. For example, we have pretty bad practices in the U.S. of farming. We have rows and rows of one type of corn, for example. It's called a monoculture. So one plant, usually it's actually with corn, it's a clone of the same plant. It's not even different seeds. And so like, for example, if there's a, a bug that starts attacking that, maybe climate change changes the region of that bug and the bug comes and it will devour the whole crop. There's no diversity. So um that's a bad practice. It destroys the soil. It reduces food diversity. So regenerative agriculture would actually be adaptation to our own practices, not just climate change in that regard. Got it. There's so many, so many words out there. <laughs> there are so many words. You're challenging me a little. <laughs> so I yeah. to think of them all. So um, is climate adaptation, is it a proactive move or is it a reactive move? And I think you've, you've kind of said that it's more proactive. Yeah, and it should be. But mm -hmm. it sometimes is reactive because I think we see that communities or countries, maybe governments, sometimes fail to adapt until there is a severe impact that forces them to. And sometimes that's due to lack of resources, and then resources are more available maybe after an impact. And sometimes it's due to lack of like political will or, um, or, or awareness even. Where is the greatest need for these projects? It's needed most where the impacts are most severe. And we see that that usually correlates with communities that have the fewest resources or the often the um, the least uh, pollution uh, emissions that are actually causing climate change. So there is sort of a direct correlation between low um, low emissions and high impact uh, for whatever reason we see that communities with little responsibility for climate change and little resources to prevent it, the impacts are the most severely hit. Okay. And, and where, why does Planet Aid promote climate adaptation for global development projects? I love that question. And it's because the people that we work with, mostly in sub-Saharan Africa, but also in, in Asia and, and South America, are the people experiencing the impacts of climate change. And so um, there is some mitigation, there is some reforestation, for example, and different projects addressing it. But really, um, really adaptation is crucial, not just to prevent climate change having a severe impact, but to save lives and livelihoods to protect infrastructure. So it's something that I think even before we necessarily were calling it adaptation, we were doing with our um, with our local partners because it was just needed uh, at the ground level. Something that you said a little earlier, you said that they are the least responsible for what's going on in uh, climate. So tell me a little bit about how they're paying for it in more ways than one and not and and how finance is one of the things that people are talking about as far as giving that to the um, countries that are being severely affected but not at their own you know not because of anything that they've done yeah so what you're getting at is losses and damages and that actually moves beyond adaptation because adaptation implies that you can stay where you are and just adapt your practices, your infrastructure, whatever it may be, to have higher resilience and not be as severely impacted. Um, but it's true that the impacts of climate change are very severe and depending on the context. And so it may be that 
you can't stay and adapt, that something more significant has to be uh, done. A great example of this is small island developing states. Um, and obviously these smaller states, island states are not responsible for the emissions mm -hmm. that have caused climate change. They don't have large infrastructure. They don't even have large islands. It's just, you know, a small place often paradise, like described as paradise. It's something beautiful with a deep culture, a deep history, but sea level rise is severely impacting the communities that live there. And so despite the fact that their way of life has very few negative impacts on, on the environment and on the global ecosystems or the global climate, um, they are having to leave their islands. They're having to leave their cultural sites, um, heritage sites. And that's something that's beyond adaptation. That's a loss and a damage. So that's kind of what that conversation gets at. And it's wow. it's being discussed. It's been something that's been a really hot topic since the last COP um, and before, but really recently. So Janelle, uh, Planet Aid actually helps to secure international grant funds to help with climate adaptation or to help um, our partners in whatever way they need to be helped as far as this, the circumstances go. So tell me a little bit about that. Sure. So I work with the international partnerships team at Planet Aid. And what we do is work shoulder to shoulder, we say, with our local partners. So when there is an opportunity for climate funding, let's say from USAID, or the U.S. government in some way, then I'm going to work directly with whatever partners are eligible. Let's take our partner in Malawi, for example. Uh, I'll work directly with the climate team in Malawi to develop a proposal for that funding. And it's really effective because they are local. They've been there for decades. They have the longstanding relationships with the local government and the local people. They know what the needs are. They can go talk to the people and find out what the needs are in the most impacted areas. Um, but I have the like the language ability and the U.S. context knowledge to be able to support in writing that proposal. So we work together to access um, funding that really is critical for these adaptation projects to take place. So you said you do help uh, to incorporate local uh, knowledge. So how does that what what does that look like specifically? I think we have a really beautiful example, and um, it's not a U.S. government-funded example. It's funded by the Adaptation Fund, um, sure. but it is a really beautiful example of how we incorporate uh, local knowledge and local ownership of a project, and that is our project in, um, it's in, along the border of Angola and Namibia, and it, um, it establishes climate centers in the area for community members, smallholder farmers to go to and get resources. And so they learn about how to manage agriculture regeneratively during drought conditions, for example, because that's a very severe impact in the region. But maybe more importantly, what it does is facilitate adaptation planning at the local level. And so what um, our partners do is organize the community leaders, stakeholders from different parts of the community, whether that's, um, you know, women and children, young people or um, leaders, religious centers, whatever it is to gather together. And they'll say, what are you going to do when it starts raining suddenly and it's been dry and now you have flooding after so many months of drought? What's the plan? And so they get together, they talk about it and they actually come up with a, a plan that is highly relevant to their local context. The community is on board with they can use their local knowledge. They know what their ancestors might have done, what their, you know, what their parents did, what they, their young people can be connected sometimes, like through technology, through other resources and bring new solutions. And so it really helps to prevent disaster um, by bringing everybody on board. So it's not always that you're, that they're trying to 
bring in their particular way of doing things. Sometimes it's just having the conversation and being prepared. Is that kind of what that adaptation looks like sometimes as well? Yeah. And sometimes it can be the realization, like we can be as prepared as we want, but we need infrastructure like early warning systems, for example, something that says, hey, it's about to rain a whole bunch. And if you're in a low lying area, you should you should do something different or you should know your evacuation routes. Early warning systems are um, very sort of under under available across sub-Saharan Africa. So it's something that we also see being implemented and we have also worked to implement. Um, so it's not just gather together and make a plan. Sometimes it's gather together and find out what we need to survive these impacts as well. Um, but it depends. It's always, I guess, adaptation is always in the local changing. context. It's mm. it, changing too. It is inherently local and it is inherently changing as the climate changes. Janelle, is it possible to get adaptation wrong? Yes. And um, especially with climate change, which is new and evolving, I think adaptation sometimes is going to go wrong because we're figuring out how to do it in some cases. But when this happens, it's called maladaptation. Um, So it's an attempt to adapt that actually leads to increased vulnerability or no change in in vulnerability to climate change. Um, An example of that might be a smallholder farmer is experiencing severe drought and their crops are no longer growing. And so he or she decides to leave and go work in a city so that they can, um, you know, raise funds for their family or survive. But by moving to a city, they become exposed to extreme weather in that city. Maybe it's a coastal region. A lot of our cities are along coasts. So then they, they've just exchanged vulnerabilities instead of increasing their adaptation to, um, to whatever the context is. So we definitely see maladaptation. And that's an example of an individual but we also see it in projects too, where a community is decides to adapt in a certain way. Sometimes there's an external partner that says, let's do this. Maybe it's not relevant to the local context, or maybe, you know, climate models weren't considered in the right way or something, you know, there's a lot of ways that we can go wrong. So it's critical to monitor and to constantly be evaluating the impacts. But for the most part, in your opinion, pretty much is going right. Oh, that's a hard question. I, I, I guess within, I guess I can speak within our organization, maybe not across the world, but yeah, I think we see that, um, that it is helpful. And especially the adaptation work we do is often um, like recovery from a disaster. So we're seeing very, very immediate impacts because it's like recovery. There's been something really severe happens and you need to rebuild and build adaptation into that. So we see that working very well, for example. Um, so I would say within our projects, yes. You um, actually attended the Adaptation Futures conference um, a little earlier this year. So tell me a little bit about what you learned when you were in Montreal. And, you know, tell me about why that conference was so important. Sure. It was really wonderful to be there. Um, It's the biggest global adaptation conference. It takes place every two years. Fortunately, this year it was Montreal, which is not too far um, from us here in the D.C. area. So I got to go and meet with, um, I think it was like 2,000 other adaptation professionals. They were coming to share their work, do collaborative discussion. There was a lot of dialogue, a lot of brainstorming. So it was really exciting to be there, to network and connect with, with different professionals working not just at the local level, but also at the national level or international level. So we really saw a chance to kind of mix scales and and learn from each other. Um, one of the most exciting things that I think I learned about was adaptation metrics, which sounds a little bit technical, and I guess it is, but it's the idea of 
measuring adaptation to get to exactly what we were just talking about, preventing maladaptation, knowing if adaptation is working. And because it's a new and growing field, we don't always know how to measure adaptation. And adaptation has to take place over a long time. We want to know if it's effective in the long term. So one of the big discussions that we don't necessarily have like three answers to or something, but we're finding out is how to measure if adaptation is working, um, and we hope that it is, and I think in a lot of ways, ways that it is, but how do we measure that, and how do we prove to donors, for example, that it's working? So why was it important for Planet Aid to be there? Okay, yeah, that's a good good, good follow-up question. Um, we're doing a lot of adaptation work, and we're doing it at a very local level, and so it was really important for us to be there. Uh, representing our network of local partners and the challenges that they face. For example, there's not a lot of funding in climate adaptation. There's a lot of, there's a huge gap in funding for climate overall in general, like at the global level. But a lot of the funding, even within that small pool, goes to mitigation. And we need mitigation that's critical, but we also need locally led adaptation. And so that was a really important um, part of the reason that we were there. And we also wanted to go and learn from other stakeholders in the adaptation realm and find out what is working, best practices, share some of ours and kind of exchange with other people doing important work like we are. What's on the horizon for our work with adaptation in the coming year? Oh, that's a great question. And I have been deep into 2024 planning, but I think we're going to see a lot more opportunities for climate adaptation, especially with local organizations and taking place at the local level, which means that we will be right there developing our projects and sharing our work to try to get you know more funding to the local level. So I'm really hopeful for that. And there's growing interest and in, in recognition that that's what needs to be funded. So that's that's the big plan for this coming year is to be ready for um, an increase in funding, hopefully. But also we'll just be working, as we always have been, on uh, addressing the needs at the local level with people at the center. Fantastic. Thank you so much for giving us that wonderful explanation because it kind of just allows us to understand there there are many sectors in talking about climate and finance. There's adaptation, mitigation, resilience. My goodness. <laughs> Haley, just wanted to invite you to come in and give us some of your thoughts about this conversation. Yeah, I appreciate it. Um, you know, I, I thought maybe you could talk a minute uh, about farmers clubs. Um, this is yeah. something that Planet Aid uh, is very involved with in terms of supporting our partners. And I think it's really an example of kind of a successful adaptation uh, implementation. Um, and it's really across the globe. I mean, these clubs are uh, all over the place. So maybe just give us a quick overview of that. And maybe if you can give us uh, an example of two or why it's why it's been successful, what it's getting right. Yeah. Okay. Good point. I feel like I can't talk about anything environmental with Planet Aid and not talk about Farmers Clubs. So thank you for bringing it up. And this is our flagship model for um, resilience building. And it's something we've been doing for over 40 years in Sub-Saharan Africa. And now we do it in Latin America and Asia as well. And have been doing it for a long time in those those regions as well. Uh, but essentially, it's a club of some 50, 20 to 50 farmers, smallholder farmers. Um, sometimes it's building on existing structures that, you know, communities already sort of gathered, but it helps facilitate that and strengthen that um, connection. And the club basically shares a one hectare plot of land where they can practice farming and access trainings. So let me clarify that. They already know how to farm. They're farmers. They've been farming their whole lives. But the training plot allows for uh, opportunities to 
learn sustainable agriculture techniques, conservation agriculture techniques, which help restore the nutrients in the soil so that it's long lasting and um, can support better crop growth and crops in general. It helps provide a place to talk about climate change, to access training related to that, understanding what the impacts are. And so farmers have the chance to practice those new techniques on a practice area instead of taking it to their farm doing it across their farm and then having it fail for some reason or, you know, not be applicable to what their landscape is or something like that. So they don't, they, it reduces risk basically for a farmer to be able to practice it before taking it home. But we see huge impacts. We see um, doubling of production. We see um, diversification of crops from one, two crops to up to four to six crops. And that's really important. Uh, to withstand impacts of climate change. Some crops are going to be more resilient than others, but also really important for food security and nutrition to have a diversified um, food source. We see that it leads to, through that, through to increased food security, but also increased incomes as soil is more productive and able to grow more. So families are able to sell produce and there's a direct connection between the increase in income for a local family and their children's access to education. So we see really big community impacts through organizing and providing training. And the training is not always environmental. Sometimes it's also entrepreneurship to help facilitate that income. So it's very effective. Really interesting. I thought maybe we'd just talk a little bit about what a resilient community looks like. Um, You've (laughs) mentioned some of the factors we can maybe sort of play between what a resilient community looks like versus an unresilient community. Obviously, the ability to adapt is an important factor. Um, So maybe you could talk just a little bit about what goes into that, making that ability to adapt and making a community more resilient. Yeah, that's a great question. And obviously, it's going to be dependent on the community. So I'm trying to think of a way to to generalize. Um, yeah, I think we'll put a caveat that every community is different. We can talk just generally about some of the factors. So let me let me talk about maybe a coastal community and because um, that's sort of an easy place to see the impacts. We actually have a project underway right now in partnership with Wilderness Conservation Society in Mozambique, coastal Mozambique and Nampula. And there's other local partners as well. But what we see is that it's 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 not a resilient community. It's a fish fishing dependent community where the reef and the seagrass and the mangroves have really been destroyed due to um, sort of lack of other resources and which leads to overuse. And then also climate change has been um, causing extreme weather. So more increased cyclones and storm surges along the area, very severe impacts both for the ecosystems, but also for the people that live there and depend on those ecosystems. And so this is a not a resilient community. This is a community with very high vulnerability to climate change. And so the resilient version of this community and the, the um, interventions that we're part of in this area include restoring the ecosystems. And this is something we call nature-based solutions. That's a little technical term for you, but something that's really a a hot topic in the adaptation realm and and an exciting topic. And it's basically using nature to protect people, using healthy nature, healthy ecosystems to protect people. And so we're restoring those ecosystems. We're using uh, community engagement to really take ownership of the mangroves. So it's not just put the mangroves back, but also involve the community in in both taking care of the mangroves, but also having income around the mangroves. So nurseries for growing mangrove seedlings, for example, protecting the reefs and the seagrasses. So there is an element of protection and environmental stewardship, which is critical, I think, for any community, whether they have high or low resilience. 
but then also development of alternative livelihoods. The fisheries have collapsed, so we need to make sure the people are okay, they have food, they have income, without putting more pressure on the fisheries until those fisheries are restored and can be sustainably managed. And so that's when the farmers clubs come in, kind of working through sustainable agriculture techniques that are relevant for the area, something called non-timber forest production, which is basically, you know, collecting maybe berries or honey from the forest. So not cutting trees down, but um, finding income sources and food sources within the forest. And so we see like a shift within the community to be more resilient, not just because their ecosystems are restored, but because their social structures are focused on resilience and community strengthening as well, which is not to say that the community didn't have that goal to begin with, but sometimes due to poverty or to political structures, there's a lack of resources and a lack of power to be able to implement those things without sort of resources being reallocated. Talking about some of the challenges, um, I think it's so interesting how you sort of this dichotomy of those who have the greatest impact on the climate are the least impacted on their day to day. And those with the least impact are the most uh, impacted on the day to day. How do uh, what efforts are being made to get buy-in from those who are having the greatest impact? I mean, I imagine it's tough because they're not being negatively impacted by what they're doing. So uh, I'm just wondering if you're seeing, you know, efforts to get buy-in. Yes, um, and it depends on who you want to point to. Activism is a big one. You know, taking, uh, calling, calling out organizations, calling out gas and oil, for example, keeping keeping people aware of, of what those differences are, of those injustices. Um, but we also see like kind of moving away from the corporate side where we, you know, there's this accountability issue and some organizations really do want to do better and are, are learning how to do that. And some maybe don't or don't know how, or their, their industry is so inherently bad for the environment that um, it's hard to shift, but you know, there's work being done. And I guess what I can say is that there's multiple scales of intervention. There's activism, which says you guys are doing something wrong. It's a problem. You need to change. And then there's organizations that sort of intervene and help say, okay, yeah, you guys are doing something wrong. It's not working for us. It's not working for the world. How are we going to change that? Um, and so we see kind of different levels of intervention and different willingnesses um, to be intervened, I guess. Um, but we also see sort of at a government level, we're getting ready, as Monica mentioned, for the next COP, the next climate COP, COP28, um, which will be taking place in Dubai. And um, there's a lot of, of this conversation happening there, for example. Countries that do not have severe impacts are there talking to countries with the most historical impacts or countries that are developing and have increasing energy sources and may actually be causing um, more emissions now are there and trying to figure out how to do that sustainably. So yeah, it's taking place in, in the global arena. I had a like... follow up to what you just said. Um, you mm -hmm. were talking about activism and how that pretty much says that you're doing something wrong. Also, would you consider adaptation to be a form of activism? Because it seems like, you know, if you're, if you're actually doing something and you're actively doing something and you're able to show the success, then there's more buy-in. So, yeah, I think, I think you could argue that. Um, and sometimes it's, uh, sometimes it's maybe not so public. Maybe it's a household adapt, adapt, adapting, or maybe it's like a smaller community. And, but I think when we can 
use the metrics, as I said, to kind of measure and prove that it's working or like find ways that it has helped, then we see that sort of being scaled. We see it having a positive impact on other communities who can say, oh, these guys did it. Let's do the same thing or let's do what works for us. So yeah, in a way, it's sort of a different type of activism, not that you guys are doing something wrong, but hey, look, we did something right. You guys should do it too. It certainly, from my perception, seems to be a mounting pressure on these countries and industries and companies to be more responsible. And it's coming from every direction. It's whether it's government, local, federal government, um, like you said, Monica, whether it's other organizations or businesses, competitors who have better practices, uh, or if it's from the grassroots side, it seems like it's coming from all over the place. And like you said, the data is there too, to really back up kind of a lot of these efforts to get them to um, be more responsible. Yeah, I think so. I think we're moving positively, if, if slowly, many, in many cases, positively, which is really important. And then just one more question as we're uh, wrapping up here. I'm just wondering what other challenges to adaptation to uh, communities face? You had mentioned funding and resources. Uh, is uh, knowledge, uh, best practices? I, I'm just wondering if there's other factors that are kind of challenges. Yeah, I think that's a really important question. And sometimes the communities that are experiencing the most severe impacts aren't thinking about adaptation because they have other things to think about, like conflict right. in the area or lack of food um, or lack of income. So it it's definitely something that needs to be addressed holistically. And I think that may be also an issue. I think even in this conversation, I keep trying to, you know, I think I think I run the risk of t- getting way too technical, getting way too into the adaptation science side of things and maybe losing some of the audience. Um, but I think that's so true about adaptation. You can't just do it in a silo. It has to be part of the rest of the fabric of the community. And so I think that's a challenge as well as bringing health practitioners and governments and, you know, the food sector, energy sector altogether, many other sectors as well. Um, jobs, for example, new jobs for young people to be part of adaptation because it has to take place in all places. Well, we know uh, you're working hard to make those partnerships and connections. So we appreciate your efforts there. So thanks again, Jonelle. Uh, Very interesting conversation. Uh, Lots of good insights here. Um, Thank you, Monica. A few reminders for our listeners on the way out. If you want to stay connected with us and stay informed about the latest sustainable solutions, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and please share it with your friends, family, and colleagues. Together, we can make a difference. Remember, change starts with awareness and action. So let's keep the conversation going. Feel free to reach out to us on social media or through the website. Share your thoughts, ideas, and stories with us. We'd love to hear from you. Until next time, remember, it's a big world out there, but every small change counts. Together, we can build a better, more sustainable future. Thank you all. 